Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. The Gaelic festival of Lunasa, Lunastal, or otherwise known today as Lamis, falls on the 1st of August, harvest time, when the crops are ripening, a time to reap what has been sown. An agricultural event that marks not only the harvest, but the weaning of cattle from their mothers. And to this day, varying celebrations still take place in Ireland, Scotland, the Isle of Man, England and Wales. From its beginnings in pagan times, Lunasa eventually became the Christian festival of Lamis. The word itself derived from Laf Mesa, which in Anglo-Saxon means Love Mass, a feast of thanks for the first harvest. Mara McNeil observed this festival in her book, The Festival of Lunasa, a study of the survival of the Celtic festival of the beginning of the harvest where such festivals involved ceremonies and rituals to bring protection, luck and blessings for the season to come. Written in the 1960s, it's a book certainly worth reading. One point of interest I noted is that McNeil suggests that originally the festival may have fallen around the face of the moon instead of the beginning of the month. One quote reads, The lunar connection may be revealed in the term Luan used in Luan in Lunasid and in Luan Loga Lunasa. Luan, in these expressions, is more likely to mean the new moon, the first day of the month, than Monday, as it is sometimes translated. So as you can guess, my studying of lunar calendars and lore has now begun. In Scotland, at this time of feasting and celebration, there are not so distant accounts of the festival taking place in Orkney and Shetland. My love for the history and folklore of the islands has led me to discovering some fascinating superstitions and practices, which resemble Irish gatherings and rituals too. In fact, in Ireland to this day, markets are still held at this time. In a book you know I love and have quoted many times, it's The Gaelic Otherworld by John Gregerson Campbell. Well, there we have some wonderful descriptions of folklore and superstitions surrounding Lunastal which I will share with you later. Today, let us begin with the god Lu and his association to the festival of Lunasa. In Irish mythology, it would be fair to say that Lu is an important god. It's said he is the son of Cian, who was a son of Dian Cecht, the god of medicine and healer to the Tuatha de Danann, and of Ethlin, the daughter of Baelor, king of the Fomori. The Fomori are described as a violent and misshapen race of sea gods who emerged from the waves to challenge the rulers of Ireland. The Tuatha and the Fomori were bitter enemies, and there are two tales I will share with you involving Lu that will help to explain these opposing forces a little better. The Tuatha arrived on the shores of Ireland and found its lands already taken by the Fear Bog. At the First Battle of Magdurid, the Fyrbog were defeated and handed kingship of Ireland over to the Tuatha de Danann. At this time, the ruler of the Tuatha was Nuada, but he was terribly wounded in the fray and lost an arm. 
The injury left him imperfect, forcing him to abdicate, and a new leader was chosen in Bress, who became king. But he was not a successful ruler or well-loved. His father was Famori, and it would appear that Bress displayed the negative traits of his lineage during his reign. But by now, Noada had recovered, first receiving an arm made from silver by Deankecht to replace the one lost in battle, and then one made from flesh and bone by Deankecht's son, Miak. Noada reclaimed his kingship. Having been overthrown, Bress sought his Fomori father's aid and was eventually led to Baylor. With an army raised, Bres sought out the Tuatha, and the Second Battle of Magdurid was fought. But in the absence of Bres, much had changed in the Tuatha kingdom. Lu had now become a formidable leader and king. Nuada, the god associated with wisdom, magic, battle and the sword of Findius, saw in Lu a great leader, and so stepped down from the throne in his favour and being a warrior prepared himself for the fight ahead. The battle commenced, but ultimately it came down to a single combat between Lu and the Fomori giant Baylor. Delivering a blow from his slingshot and piercing the giant's eye, Lu slayed Baylor. Grace was captured by the Tuatha, and when confronted by Lu, the god of agriculture begged for his life. Brez offered Lou an abundance of corn for the men of Ireland in every quarter, in return for his life. However, Lou refused and told Brez all that he needed was the knowledge of when to plough, sow and reap. Brez replied that ploughing, casting and reaping must fall always on a Tuesday. This wisdom is accepted and from then on the Tuatha were successful in the cultivation of the land. You will recall that before this tale, I mentioned Lu's mother was Ethelin, the daughter of Baelor, king of the Fomori. It had long been foretold that Baelor would be slain by a child born to his daughter. And because of this, Baelor took great measures to avoid his fated death and imprisoned Ethelin in his fortress on Tory Island, keeping her far from any that might father a child. There are varying versions of how Cian came to Ethelin. In one tale, he is guarding a cow which is stolen by Baelor from Gwivnu, smith and god of the Tuatha. Cian seeks out Baelor, but finds Ethelin instead and sleeps with her. To protect Lu from the attempts of Baelor to kill him, he is fostered to manhood by Gwivnu, or, actually in another version of the myth, he is brought up by the sea god Manin Maglir. Baelor, giant and possessor of the evil Eye of Destruction, the god associated with the north, the source of otherworld power, and the south, as the searing, burning heat of the sun, was defeated at the Second Battle of Magdurid by Lu, the grandson who would drive Baelor towards his fate, and conversely represent the beneficial light of the sun. Thus, the prophecy had been fulfilled. A passage I particularly like comes from the book Magic of the Celtic Otherworld, Irish History, Lore and Rituals by Steve Blamires. He says, This combining of the opposing races into one person symbolises Lu as being equally and consciously aware of both worlds and both the dark and light sides of his nature. What were the aspects of Lu's nature? There are no shortage of stories involving Lu. 
They depict him as a warrior and a leader, but also so much more than this. Lu's name means shining one. He is connected to the sun and is the master of crafts, as this passage from Marie-Louise Siostet's Celtic Gods and Heroes observes. A story tells that when Lu presented himself at the assembly of the Tuatha, the porter asked him before admitting him, What skill have you? For no one is admitted to Tara unless he have some skill. I am a carpenter, said Lu. We do not need you, is the answer, for we have a carpenter. I am a smith, said Lu. But the Tuatha have a smith. Lu then insists that he is also a harper, poet, historian, champion, hero and sorcerer. The Tuatha have among them specialists in all these crafts, but they have no one who combines them all, and so they receive Lu into their company. Lu soon earns another title, Samuel Danach, which means of many skills, and his full title is Lu Lamfada, which is Lu of the long arm or long-handed or far-shooter. This title could be in reference to his warrior status, from the use of his spear which gives certain victory, or the slang with which he slays Baylor. In fact, Lu had many objects including Wave Sweeper, the boat of man in the sea god, and the sword named Answerer that possesses the ability to cut through anything. We might also attribute the power of healing to Lu, for it is he who heals the young hero Kilin after his battles at Connacht. But that is another story I'm saving, and one that we won't talk about too much today. I will add, however, that many of the heroic sagas name Lu as the father of Kilin. There is another interesting thing to note. It is something that many have thought upon and mentioned in many of the descriptions of the god Lu. There is something of a curious connection with Lu and ravens. Lugos was the probable name of the god that the Romans called Gaulish Mercury, and it also means raven. Before the second battle of Macturid, Lu receives a warning from his two ravens of the coming of the Fomorians. Ellis Davidson notes the link between Odin and Lu both gods possessing two ravens and their images as sources of wisdom and prophetic knowledge. Siostet suggests that Lu might have been a raven god in origin, but also notes that nowhere in Irish mythology does this appear. However, in wider Celtic myth we do find traces. Towns such as Ligavalium, which is now Carlisle, and Lugdunum, which is Leon, and historically an important Roman city in Gaul. These are linked by scholars to Lu, and at Lugdunum, coins have been found depicting the images of ravens. There is a story connecting Lu to the harvest concerning his foster mother, a goddess named Teotiu, who is closely linked to the land and the harvest. The legend tells us that Teotiu was the wife of the last Fyrbog king of Ireland, and having survived the invasion of the Tuatha, she then marries one of their own. In order to make the land more fertile for her people, she spends a year clearing a vast plain. However, the task that required so much of her skill and magic was so great that the effort of doing so led to her death. Lu buried Teotu in a cairn on the plain that she had cleared and declared that games be held in her honour. These games would consist of feats of strength and the racing of horses. Teotu demonstrates her sacrifice to the land, 
restoring its fertility and returning to the earth. It's important to remember that Iron Age Celtic Britain consisted of farming communities who tended crops and livestock. It would have required a great deal of knowledge and skill to cultivate the land. Indeed, archaeological evidence indicates that a mixture of pastoral and arable farming was practised throughout the country. I believe that more than skill would have been required. The Celts understood the impact of a bad harvest. They might cost lives, and so rituals, sacrifices, offerings and prayers to the gods would have gone hand in hand with the physical labour. There is another legend, which refers to the god Lu wedding the land, and the translation of Lunasad being either Lu's wedding or Lu's bride. Folklorists in Ireland and Scotland have seen that over the years, in the past, that many young couples were betrothed or wed at the festival of Lammas in a practice called hand fasting. This ancient pagan practice would sometimes use cords or ribbons to bind the hands of the couple. In Scotland, hand fasting allowed couples to live together for a year and a day. In Ireland, the marriages were contracted until the following Beltane before deciding whether or not to solidify their union with a church wedding or to separate and seek out another partner. I have a rather wonderful little passage to share with you. It comes from Ernest Marwick's The Folklore of Shetland and Orkney. It reads, A considerable measure of intimacy, circumscribed only by the restraints of common sense and tradition, was permitted to young people. At Kirkwall Lammas Fair in past centuries, the most important event of the Orkney year. Couples who had agreed to be sweethearts for the period of the fair were styled Lammas brother and sister. Although the attachment might be temporary, they were allowed the freedom usually reserved for permanent relationships. After a Shetland wool combing, the girls who had taken part often spent the night on a line of sheaves on the barn floor called a lang bed, together with the boys who had come to keep them company. The pattern of courtship was that once familiar in many places from Norway to New England and in various parts of the British Isles, with the couple fully clothed, spending the night in the girl's bed. The fact that the girl had a lover was almost always an open secret in her family, but the young man took elaborate precautions to come and go without ever being seen. It wouldn't be a myth, legend and lore episode without mentioning Norse mythology, and today, thanks to a good friend, my attention has been brought to the heathen feast day of Freyfaxi. This too is a harvest feast, or celebration held at this time of year, in honour of the god Frey. We are given a clue about how the Vanir god was regarded from Snorri Sturluson, as he describes Frey in Gilfaginning. Frey is the noblest of gods, he rules over rain and sunshine, and thus over the produce of the earth. It is good to call upon him for good harvests and for peace. He watches over the prosperity of mankind. In Norse mythology, both Frey and his sister Freya both own boars. Gullum Borsti, who pulls Frey's chariot, is described as having the ability to run faster than air or any horse, with brightly shining bristles and made by the dwarf Brock, who helped Sindri also forge Molnir and Dropnir. In my research, I have come across the association 
of protection with Frey many times. The Vanir were not gods of battle, and the symbol of a boar was used for protection in times of war. H.R. Ellis Davidson observes this in her book Gods and Myths of Northern Europe, and mentions that both Tacitus and Beowulf stressed the protective power of the boar emblem. Horses were also closely associated with Frey. As we've discovered in previous episode, the horse was a symbol of strength, held in high regard not only for their use in battle, but for speed, to both the Norse and the Celtic peoples. Ellis Davison makes note of the fact Frey was associated with the horse cult, and that in Thrandheim, sacred horses were kept in his sanctuary there. There is a saga about a man named Raffenkel who kept horses near a temple in honour of Frey in Iceland. Raffinkel owned a stallion called Freyfaxi, who he dedicated to Frey. And Freyfaxi means mane of Frey, and was particularly sacred, so much so that everyone apart from Raffinkel was forbidden to ride upon it. But tragically, a young boy who meant no harm disobeys the wishes of Raffinkel, who, compelled by his oath, was forced to slay the offending rider of Freyfaxi. I think perhaps this demonstrated human nature more than anything, and the seriousness of oaths and devotion. In fact, offerings, sacrifice of animals, and on occasion human victims, was recorded by Saxo Grammaticus at a great sacrifice called Froblot, which took place in Uppsala. Adam of Bremen also mentions Frey's image in a temple at Uppsala in a phallic form, and it was to Frey, the god of peace and plenty, to whom mortals would invoke at marriages. These kinds of offerings are just an example. The Vanir are fertility gods, and as such were called upon for good harvests, favourable weather, sun, rain and wind, so vital for the cultivation of land and of course for fishermen and those who sailed at sea. What should also be remembered is the banning of weapons from the temples of Frey, and his anger at bloodshed upon the land. He was a god of peace, bringer of fertility, connected to marriage and children, whose counsel was sought, and who appeared in the dreams of men. That Freyfaxi was a time when men would put down their swords, returning home to their families and harvesting the crops. It is a time of thankfulness, prayer, celebration and looking ahead to the following year's yield. And now to a few superstitions I promised you at the beginning of the episode. Which of course come from John Gregerson Campbell's The Gaelic Otherworld. Giving fire out of the house. On the first day of every quarter, New Year's Day, St Bride's Day, Beltane and Lammas. No fire should be given out of the house. On the last two days especially it should not be given, even to a neighbour whose fire has gone out. It would give him the means of taking the substance or benefit from the cows. If given after the person who has come for it left, a piece of burning peat should be thrown into a tub of water to keep him from doing harm. It will also prevent his coming again. The next particular superstition contains what is called seining, and that is to make the sign of a cross or a symbol 
um, for protection against evil influences and effectively to bless. At certain seasons of the year, principally at Beltane and Lammas, a wisp of straw called Sotseil was taken to sprinkle the doorposts and the houses all round sunwise to preserve them from harm. When a new cow came home, it was also sprinkled to preserve it from the evil eye. The liquid used was menstruum. In spring, the horses' harness, plough, etc. were similarly sprinkled before beginning to plough. This next particular superstition is extremely interesting. I must ask for your patience with the pronunciation of a particular word. Have researched it. It's very hard to find um, a source that can tell me exactly how it would sound today. However, I will give it a go. Counter charms. Of course, spells could be counteracted. It would not be right that such dangerous powers should be unchecked. Some of the counter charms were good disinfectants, but in general, the efficacy of the remedy was as imaginary as the enemy whose machinations were to be defeated. It was to prevent the taking of milk from cows that nearly all counter charms were used. Anything in which people believed would be sufficient. But the antidotes in ordinary use were these. Juniper pulled in a particular manner was burned before the cattle and put in the cows' tails. A ball of hair, or gaussia, was called a ronag, was put in the milk pail on Lammas Day, or on the Thursday after, to keep its substance in the milk during the rest of the year. McSimmon, a sept of the clan MacArthur's, a native of Bill Martin and Tyree was much resorted to in former times for these constitution balls. On Lammas Day, or Lunastal, he gave to all who came to him a little bag of plants, sewn up, to be placed in the cream jug for the ensuing year, that the cattle and the milk might retain their virtue or substance. Researching this episode was very special to me. Throughout the episodes of this podcast, we've been making an interesting journey. And one thought I have come away with is how we should honour or treat the land. The land that still provides so much for us to this day, and the gods associated with it. It's important to remember the people and cultures we have come from, and what it would have taken to survive in times so long ago in our past. Perhaps we should honour our ancestors too. Without them and their strength, perseverance and belief, we might not be here at all. And certainly, it's a gift to have such myths, legends and lore to share. This week's Irish legends will concentrate on Lou. Um, I have a few stories to share with you, so I will do my very best to kick this chest infection that is robbing me of my voice and um, record and get them posted to you. The stories are just absolutely fantastic as always. I can also happily announce that you will be able to find the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash myth legend lore. And I must extend my sincere thanks to my first Patreon members. You guys are so supportive and it really does mean an incredible amount. I hope that you enjoyed your first mini episode this week. With each episode, I like to share a piece of myth, legend or lore to close. And so I thought I would give you an idea of some of the legends surrounding Lou. It was in this battle, 
Ogma found Orna, the sword of Tethra, a king of the Fomor, and he took it from its sheath and cleaned it. And when the sword was taken out of the sheath, it told all the deeds that had been done by it, for there used to be power in swords. And Lu and the Dagda and Ogma followed after the Fomor, for they had brought away Dagda's heart with them. And they came to a feasting house, and in it they found Bress and his father Elithan. And there was the harp hanging on the wall. And it was in that harp the Dagda had bound the music so that it would not sound till he would call to it. And sometimes it was called Durdabla, the oak of two blossoms, and sometimes Korkerthurkun, the four angled music. And when he saw it hanging on the wall, it was what he said. Come summer, come winter, from the mouth of harps and the bags of pipes. Then the harp sprang from the wall and came to the Dagda, and it killed nine men on its way. And then he played it for them, the three things harpers understand, the sleepy tune, and the laughing tune, and the crying tune. And when he played the crying tune, their tearful women cried, and then he played the laughing tune till their women and children laughed, and then he played the sleepy tune, and all the hosts fell asleep. And through that sleep, the three went away through the Fomor that would have been glad to harm them. And when all was over, the Dagda brought out the heifer he had got as wages from Bress at the time he was making his dun. And she called to her calf, and at the sound of her call, all cattle of Ireland the Fomor had brought away as tribute were back in their fields again. Enke, the druid of Nawada of the Silver Hand, was wounded in battle, and he went southward till he came to the Karn Korslib, and there he sat down to rest, tired with his wounds and with the fear that was on him and the journey. And he saw a smooth plain before him, and it full of flowers, and a great desire came on him to reach that plain. And he went on till he came to it, and there he died. And when his grave was made there, a lake burst out over it and over the whole plain, and it was given the name of Lochke. And there were but four men of the Fomor left in Ireland after the battle, and they used to be going through the country, spoiling corn and milk and fruit, and whatever came from the sea, till they were driven out one sowing night by the Morugu and by Angus Og, that the Fomor might never be over Ireland again. And after the battle was won, and the bodies were cleared away, the Morugu gave out the news of the great victory to the hosts in the royal heights of Ireland, and to its chief rivers and its inverse, and it was what she said. Peace up to the skies, the skies down to earth, the earth under the skies, strength to everyone. And as to the number of men that fell in the battle, it will not be known till we number the stars of the sky, or the flakes of snow, or the dew on the grass, or grass under the feet of cattle, or the horses of the son of Lear in the stormy sea. And Lu was made king over the men of day then, and it was at Naz he had his court. And while he was king, 
his foster mother Teilta, daughter of Magmor, the great plain, died. And before her death, she bade her husband, Duak the Dark, he that built the fort of the hostages in Timher, to clear away the wood of Kun, the way there would be a gathering of people around her grave. So he called to the men of Ireland to cut down the wood with their wide-bladed knives and billhooks and hatchets, and within a month the whole wood was cut down. And Lou buried her in the plain of Meath, and raised a mound over her that is to be seen to this day. And he ordered fires to be kindled, and a keening to be made, and games and sports to be held in the summer of every year out of respect to her. And the place they were held got its name for her, that is tale ten. And as to Lou's own mother, that was tall, beautiful Ethlin, she came to team her after the battle of Mukterid, and he gave her in marriage to Tag, son of Nuada. And the children that were born to them were Murna, mother of Finn, the head of the Fianna of Ireland, and Turin, that was the mother of Bran. Thank you for joining me today. As always, you can reach me on email at mlegendlore at gmail.com or on Twitter at loremyth. I'm Siobhan Clark, and this is the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. <laughs>